You're listening to the Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network brought to you by Full Sneak Gear. Check out their entire lineup at fullsneakgear.com. Also be sure to check out our entire stable of podcasts at sportsmansempire.com. HuntStand is the most popular and functional mobile hunting app on the market. With a variety of base maps to choose from, satellite imagery that is updated every month, the ability to check the weather, no property information, and even catalog your trail cam picks, HuntStand even gives you the ability to import pins and location markers from other mobile apps. Visit HuntStand.com or download wherever you download your apps. Enter discount code SN20 at checkout for 20% off. Welcome to Maximize Your Hunt, the podcast dedicated to those who want the most out of their hunting property. This podcast explores land management, habitat improvement, and hunting strategies that will help you maximize your time in the field. Follow along as industry professionals that live and breathe white-tailed deer share their secrets to success. And now, the founder of Whitetail Landscapes, your host, John Teeter. Hi, I'm John Teeter, Whitetail Landscapes. This is Maximize Your Hunt. Welcome back, everybody. I'm happy to be back. I am on the road in the next couple of days traveling. I'm cutting timber on client properties. And I hopefully everyone's enjoyed the past couple of podcasts. We talked about how to design a property for turkeys. That was interesting. Marcus Lashley, if you haven't listened to that, please go listen to that. Also talked about soil and soil health, mineral balancing, plant, plant back periods, all the different things that we considered when we went through the process of looking at soil, kind of a deep dive. We talked about macros, micros, nutrient deficiencies across the landscape, boron deficiencies, kind of detailed how I evaluate the landscape and the importance of that when we're coming up with a plan and leveraging the best soils on our landscapes. Those are really critical. If you haven't listened to those podcasts, please do go back and listen to them. There's great content in there. I'll probably take a deeper dive into some of those. And I know that's, you know, where does this relate to deer hunting? You know, it it all comes back to soil. I'll continue to say that and I'll continue to promote that. My process, trying to create more sustainable soils, right, with with some other strategies, which we haven't talked about, you know, long-term non-soluble amendments. I'll give you some of the details. I'll give you solutions for that. You know, no fertilizer examples. We've talked about that as well in the podcast. So I just want everyone to start thinking a little bit outside the box, you know, not just think focusing on the MPK amendments, you know, certain, you know, plant varieties, you know, open your mind, try new things. I'm trying new things all the time. So that's the point of this podcast. So I'm excited. I have a new guest on today and I'm going to introduce him here in a second. Hey, Austin, are you on the line? Yes, sir. Okay. Austin, I want you to introduce yourself. I'm, I'm happy I connected with you. I talked to Bobby Cole and he's like, you got to get Austin on your podcast. So, you know, why don't you give a little detail about yourself, you know, where you work, what your job is. I think people want to know more about you. Absolutely. And, uh, appreciate y'all having me on. Um, uh, name is Austin Delano. I work with Mossy Oak Biologic and Mossy Oak Gamekeepers. I have been with them since 2006 so uh been a pretty good little tenure i've had there uh actually went to school for forestry uh way back when and was kind of my original background was uh timber harvesting and production and kind of getting into the whole uh you know major pine tree crop that so much of the south is made out of that was what i kind of intended to get into as a young guy and started uh, I got an opportunity straight out of college years ago to, to run a privately owned uh, wildlife management area and did that for about 10 or 11 years. And then I've been with uh, Mossy Oak since 2006 and uh, do most of our R&D for biologic on our seeds and fertilizers and products that we're trying to bring to the market for helping the average guy try to, you know, make his place better. And I, I use this analogy all the time. We we try to help the guy that's got four acres, forty acres, and and four thousand. We, uh, you know, we're trying to educate and also have management products for everybody out there. So, uh, I I spend a lot of time in the dirt uh, all through the year, and I also spend a lot of time in front of a computer. So, uh, as with 
just about everybody now technology is is a major part of what we do so you know i i can be reading soil samples all day in an office one day and and the next day uh have a drip torch in your hand so i love what i do and uh happy to be on with y'all and and uh i've got to catch up on some of y'all's episodes and love learning from some of the guests you've had on so it's good stuff yeah thanks man i appreciate it so you know bobby was telling me that that you uh you're a guru that's what he categorized you as which you know you probably don't want to take that accolade but especially from him of course but um i i I, um you know i'm such a simple individual when it comes to food plots and uh, we i talked to perry batten who's on this podcast with jury and and obviously they use your product they love your product and and they're big clover folks i mean that's you know it's clover and corn i mean that's really kind of you know it's not just what they do but in a lot of their layouts that's that's kind of where their focus is you know, when it comes to, you know, biologic offerings, and I, I looked at your offerings, you know, the past couple of days, and, you know, I, I I struggle because in the springtime, you know, you've got this debate, you know, do I want to go with an annual or do I want to go with a perennial? And, mm-hmm. you know, sometimes an establishment period makes things easier. Uh, the other piece of this is, you know, what are you going to get more biomass or output yield, right? People think, okay, how do I get the most tonnage possible? And there's that debate that constantly is kind of going on in your head. There's the other piece of it, maintaining it, where you're mowing, spraying, you know, we're talking perennial more than likely, um, where an annual, you're likely not doing that. You may spot spray or, you know, generally spay, but you're kind of looking at these two options. And I, I kind of wanted to start there with you and say, you know, what's your, what's your take on this? Yeah, that's a great question. And something that, you know, a lot of landowners and land managers kind of struggle with every year is, you know, trying to put the puzzle together of what's going to work best for them. And, you know, generally I, I, I really want to encourage people to look at the piece of property they're managing, whether it's your granddad's, you know, back 20 that you've got access to, or, you know, do you have a 2000 acre hunting club that you're in with a bunch of other guys where you've got a lot of options, but, you know, based on your prior experience with, with the area or with even that particular piece of property, what do you feel and, and we're going to relate this mostly to whitetails, but what do you feel your whitetails need the most and what time of year are they needing it the most? Are you in an area with a lot of heavy ag where, you know, you're going to have literally hundreds of acres of soybeans around you this spring and summer? Or are you in a primarily, a you know, a, a timber part of the world where, you know, there's very few wildlife openings. We have a lot of timber, mature timber cutovers and, you know, maybe there's a major void in the amount of ag production in the spring and summer. So, you know, sometimes that can kind of weigh in on, you know, a guy's decision on whether he's going to use an annual or a perennial for a spring planting and what's going to be, you know, the most beneficial to him. Like you were talking about from a biomass standpoint of how much food can we create on the openings that we have control over. And, you know, then we're also looking at where, where, where are we at? Do we live in New York or do we live in the deep South? Uh, because that's always going to play a big role in when and how we plant these crops. You know, y'all have, you know, when you start getting up into the Midwest and the upper Midwest and the North, things just grow better at certain times of the year up there. It's just a better window for growing. Also, it gets colder a lot quicker and stays colder longer. So all those things have to be kind of kept taken into account when you start looking into do I want to try to frost seed a clover field this year and try to you know get it established and get it really thick and healthy and by the time fall archery season rolls around it's it's up and jamming and it's a really good food source or you know do I want to go with a you know a soybean and iron and clay pea or and you know maybe some millets and sorghums in there to have a little bit more of an annual planting and I never say there's a right or wrong answer. I, I always say there's a right or wrong answer maybe for your situation. And you have to say, okay, I've got five acres to deal with. I've got 50 acres to deal with because that's really going to be the game changer. How much ground am I talking about here that I need to try to grow this crop on? And, you know, if if that's the case and we're just dealing with a couple of acres, it's almost like your decision becomes more, you know, it's more of a, we have to do this if you've only got three or four acres to deal with. Does that make sense? You yeah. know, it, it, yeah. we don't, we don't feel like you have as much room for error when you've just got a couple of tiny food plots that you're trying to really 
make their best. And so, um, you know, we're huge fans of clover. Um, it, it's just, it's such a good crop for whitetails. All of us small critters love it. And when you do it right, it's just really, really productive from a wildlife standpoint, but there's a lot of other great stuff out there too. So I'm a really, really big fan of trying to create wildlife openings, food plots that are big enough that I can hopefully have two crops growing in there. I really like to have a three or four acre opening where I've got a perennial and an annual in the same area. And I can kind of manipulate both of them to be putting as much groceries in that area as possible through a 12 month cycle. I I like that answer because that's typically what I do when I do my consulting, I have both. And I think it's, it's that happy medium that you're creating in the landscape. The other piece of this is in between planning periods. So I have a roller crimper and I'm into, I guess, uh, sequential crop considerations. So looking at the next phase, maturity periods of these crops, right? When I can create the next crop and there's these gaps, interest gaps, I call them. And so it's a period in between planning where the deer aren't utilizing that food plot. If you don't have a perennial food source, and this is time of year contingent, then you're not creating that constant attractivity to that particular area. And to me, that's a deficit to your design and layout. And I think if we thought through that, not just biomass, but just interest. And that is meaningful to me. I want deer on my property all the time. The, the other point you brought up is, and we've talked about this on the podcast previously, is if you are in an ag area and we're talking about competition, what are you doing mm-hmm. different? Like, are you doing something different from your neighbors, from, from the local agriculture, your farmers? Are you doing something different or are you doing the same? And just, it's a timing thing. Cause we, we've had that debate on this podcast a few times. I'd kind of like to know your opinion. Yeah, I think that's something that a lot of guys run into, especially as you start getting, you know, even in the south where we have a ton of ag and you start getting a little bit out of the, um, you know, the areas that are primarily timber and getting into timber and ag and and pasture. And and as you get up into the Midwest and the, you know, the row crop fields become bigger and more expansive, what what are you going to do? to your couple hundred acres that you're trying to manipulate to make it different than the guy two miles down the road that's trying his best too, because we're all hunting the same deer, you know? I mean, in in a general area like that, like you said, how can you differentiate your place from the guy down the road who's also trying to do his level best to create a landscape that's best for his whitetails year-round? And I think it takes what I call windshield time, of riding around, talking to the guy down the road whose row crop field borders your place, and what, what what's his plans for the upcoming year? Because if I've got a little bit of a heads up of, you know, Farmer Smith down here is going to have 340 acres of soybeans, but he's planting, but he's going to be putting them behind wheat, which means they're going to come in late. How does that affect what I'm going to do on my piece of property that touches him from a growing spring and summer food perspective. So I might want to do something different if I know the guy's planting late beans that year. Um, Vice versa, if he's planting early beans, maybe I want to do something different. I think it takes riding around, talking to people, and if if you want to be, you know, that involved in your piece of property and trying to make it the absolute best it can be for a window of time during the year, not only for growing your deer and and trying to create an environment where they, they reach their potential because you're giving them all the nutrients they need plus have that two or three month time period where we're actually chasing these critters and trying to you know put some in the freezer and a couple on the wall what have i done different and that's going to start right now february and march in in our planning period of what what can i do to make this place special different than what's going on down the road and you know i think it takes some out of the box thinking sometimes i think it takes some some timber stand improvement on a place that maybe you didn't think would make that big of a deal, but you go in there and make a couple of, you know, clear cuts in, in a couple of spots and create some bedding zones that they didn't have, you know, maybe planting a different type of legume during the spring and summer that nobody else has, maybe using some, you know, some peas and some, 
some mung beans, you know, some Alice clover, something different because whitetails are inherently in some areas have the ability to be picky and they can pick and choose between their food sources. And we all want to create a lot of diversity on a property. We, we know that. So what am I going to do to create that diversity from a food standpoint? If everything around me is going to be soybeans that year, because your, your thinking is, well, I don't really have to do anything. You know, my neighbors are going to feed my deer for me all spring and summer with these row crops. But at the same time, like, I really want that buck that I've passed for the last two, three years to keep on using this food plot that I've got here and kind of keep on calling it home when he wants to. Uh, so what am I going to have different if, if my neighbor's place is 95% soybeans? Yeah, I, I can't, I can't agree with you more that that's exactly how I approach it. It's being different. Uh, there's this other piece of this is, you know, being different with your soil and, um, talking a little bit more about managing trace elements and thinking about, you know, the, the selectivity of deer and then that diversity example you brought up earlier and then the synergy of plants. And then, uh, yeah, I, I, I like your philosophy because this is very similar to the way I, I look at things on the landscape. I, okay. I want to get more specific now. So I want to, you know, we're in the planning preparatory part of the year. I, I have a snowstorm going on right near here in my house. So, you know, this is a time to sit down and start to think, you know, what am I going to do this season? I'm, I'm in this mode myself, right? Um, I've got corn. Uh, there's been strategies. Uh, you've probably heard of this. People burn down corn, uh, actually, you know, light it on fire, uh, you know, chop it. Um, I'm in this stage where I, I added a bunch of amendments and uh, rock dust and all sorts of different uh, amendments that are on the landscape. And then, then I'm in this cycling phase. So I want to get back in the nutrient cycling phase. So for me, I, I, I got like a standard, you know, I, I go with my oats, my peas and my buckwheat. I've been using that combination and that's a 50, 50 day maturity crop. Basically I roller crimp it and then I do another 50 days and I'll, I might go partially into, you know, kind of a perennial on one half and I'll continue in an annual on the other. And that annual, we can get into that for a fall planning, but we want to talk about like, that's, that's one of my circumstances. That's a prime example of one thing that I have to worry about and a simple rotation like that. I might add in some white mustard, um, some other plant species, um, and, and maybe even some perennials into that annual rotation as well, just because, you know, I, I may lack in legumes. I may ha- have a more carbonaceous crop in there. We, we talked about that on a previous podcast, um, you know, thinking about kind of the straw component, you know, things that don't break down at a fast rate. So mm-hmm. I want your perspective on looking at a, let's say a fallow field starting, what's the steps, what are you doing? And then I want some examples of, of kind of seed selection based on soil type. I want you to be specific and, and think through some of the examples, things that you deal with all the time. Yeah, I think being, um, you know, knowing your soils, you know, we talk about getting specific and obviously, you know, I'm sure, you know, a lot of anybody that's listening to this podcast is probably going to be a little bit of a nerd like we are on, you know, soil sampling and, and getting to know the dirt that you're trying to manipulate is, is, is one of the best terms for it because that's what we're doing on a, you know, sometimes two to three times a year where we're manipulating the soil to grow crops that are the most beneficial for something that we're all after. So, you know, having samples sent in and getting to know what your, what your soil has and also what it doesn't have. And that, that's one, you know, one, one of the big things that people call all day long, email us, what's the best thing I can plant for my deer? Okay. Well, you know, that is not a good question to ask me because you fix and be here for a couple hours. Um, <laughs> yep. Not because, not because I want to, tell you everything I've got in, in my brain, but I want to give you the best answer for your situation. And what I told a guy five minutes ago that lives somewhere else may not apply to you. So I don't want to just cast out some general recommendations that, that might or might not help you. So, you know, getting to know the soil on your place and what it does. And also, like I said earlier, when I just harp on people all the time, please go get a sample done please get 10 samples done on your place, depending on what you're working with. And, and let's look at a big picture of what is your place missing? What's it not missing? What do you have that other people don't have? And let's look at what crops are most likely to do the best 
the first couple of years as you amend the soil and, and get it better? And what can we look at using down the road? So, you know, being, um, you know, having a plan instead of a lot of people already want to have all the stuff that they want to plant and they want to get in the ground as soon as it warms up, but they've, that they haven't done any of the, the prior work to it to find out whether that's actually going to be successful or not. And so like you were talking about doing, you know, whatever you want to call it, regenerative farming and, and trying to use, you know, trying to disturb the soil as, as least as possible. And, you know, I, I want to make suggestions for guys that are going to not create more work, but create more results. And a lot of times that thinking outside the box, like a little bit, like you're talking about using roller crampers and actually kind of pumping the brakes on, okay, why do we not plant, you know, clover in the South in the spring? Well, because it's 99% of the time going to be a failure um, because we don't have the weather to grow clover in the spring and summer long enough for that to get established. Now, if you frost seed it, February, early March, it gets started, you probably got a chance. But if you go on there and rip up your dirt in Alabama, Georgia, Mississippi, Tennessee, May, and try to plant clover, you're chunking $100 bills out the window. Yeah. And will it never work? You know, sometimes it might, but I've been doing this long enough. I've been all over the place. It just doesn't work that often. So little things like that, that a guy reads in a magazine that eats clover, but you got to take into account where, where are you at and what's going to work best for the time of year when I can start attacking that piece of property. And like you're talking about putting in, you know, some grains and I, you know, some of my summer, spring and summer mixes, man, they're odd. I've got some weird stuff in there. I might put, you know, I might have a cereal grain in there. I might have a, you know, one of our cool season uh, brassicas in there and some beans and some peas because maybe it's a piece of dirt that needs a lot of help. It has no organic matter in it. It just, it needs biomass introduced into the soil for seasons. And so for that first couple of years, I'm not going to be real specific about what I put in there as much as I'm going to be very broad because we just need, we need crops growing in there and decomposing and more crops growing and more crops. And you know what I'm talking? You just need to build the tilth of, of that particular ground up so that it can start being more and more productive down the road versus if, you know, maybe you've got a couple of fields that you've been working on for 10 years where, you know, everything is, pretty much up to snuff and we can be very specific about, okay, you know, July 15th, we're going to put in our, you know, late season brassica crop. that's going to have a, you know, a, a really cold tolerant turnip and a couple of brassicas and, you know, rape varieties in there that are really good for the early and mid season, you know, and then you can start being a little bit more specific about planning timing and the actual varieties that we're trying to put in there. I like I like you going weird there on me a second and talking a little bit. Of, so two things. One, I like the fact that you talked about a deficiency, your organic material deficiency, and as a result of that, your just your decision making is next. Well, how do I build that up? And you're talking about you know kind of a more an annual cycle because biomass decomposing material, right? That kind of builds the foundation. In that case, you know you may go that route. You may look at more an annual food plot. So let's go into your annual food plot example. Let's right there specifically low OG. You've got a lot of amendments to apply at some point, right? Over time, you're looking at this kind of as a long game. Also depends on, you know, is a property you're going to hold on to for a while, right? Could be a lease, for example. But what are you, what are you deciding? What are you going to plant in that example? Yeah. So generally during, if, and, and, and I'll give you an example of, of a place that's right down the road from my house that I lease where, we have a tiny bit of row crop, but if you can imagine really big rolling hills of, of Southern Tennessee. So I, I live right on the Alabama, Tennessee line. And so I hunt both States. Um, you know, I live on a little 40 acre place that I bought a few years ago. And if I stand on my back property line and throw a rock, I can hit Tennessee. That, that's how close I am to the line. Okay. So all of our dirt in this general area is, you know, what a lot of people would call a church chert rock dirt. It's very red, uh, orange in places with a lot of gravelly substance to it. Some, some finer than others. And then you can come 10 minutes South and, you know, 
we're on the Tennessee River and there's, you know, flatland cotton growing. So it's a there's a major change in the landscape once you get up here into the very northwest corner of Alabama and southern Tennessee. So a lot of our fields and these leases that are in this general part of the area are on high ridge tops and there's not a lot of topsoil there. There probably was not a lot to begin with. And if you start looking at when logging started taking place back in the 1700s, uh, there's less now than there's ever been. So you have to be really picky about where you put your food plots if you want them to be successful year in and year out because what, what we're dealing with a lot is stuff that dries out very quickly, obviously, since it's low topsoil, low organic matter. And if I go into one of those places and it's a typical rocky seed bed, uh, not a lot of topsoil to deal with, I can tell the organics matter is low as soon as I take a shovel full out of the ground most of the time by just smelling it. Um, and you know you just need plants growing in there. So what I usually will start with is a spring and summer planting of, of legumes and also, uh, you know, grasses. So I like, you know, we've years ago we came out with a little simple but extremely effective blend of iron and clay peas and mung beans. And if you've never used mung beans, they, they grow a lot more like a pea than they do a soybean. Uh, big big leaf, kind of viney, bushy growing, um, not not your typical little, you know, 36-inch max height ag small leaf soybean. They're very broad, um, kind of viney, will, will crawl up stuff like, a, like an iron and clay pea will. So I'll use those as my legume base because they're both extremely heat tolerant um, because we're going to have a lot of days that are 98, 99 degrees with 90% humidity. And if it's not a tough plant, it won't survive down here for more than about two or three weeks once the bad weather sets in for, you know, June, July, August, and most of September. It's pretty rough down here. We just have to get enough rainfall to keep stuff alive so that it can it can keep doing its job. So I'll use that pea blend as kind of my legume base, and then I'll take one of our bird blends a lot of times that we, we focus on usually for upland birds, whether it be a dove field planting or you know, flooding it for waterfowl that's going to contain, you know, two or three types of millets, like a pearl and a proso, maybe even a brown top or a German foxtail. Um, might throw some sorghum in there, some sunflower, um, and I'll, I'll take that blend, and I'll, I'll use about a, a half rate of that with a full rate of my legumes. And I may even, I may even broadcast them a little bit different because I've got different seed sizes depending on if I'm using a no-till drill or, you know, if we're having to work the soil up. But I'll use that as my spring and summer blend for trying to create a happy medium between building my soil up and also adding some diversity and some high-protein forage for my critters to start imprinting on that area as being a place they can always come and get a belly full of food. And, and that's one of the, you know, uh, things that I've found that works great down here is that as pretty as a, you know, a five-acre soybean field, sometimes no. But you have to get out of the mindset, and I figured this out 20-plus years ago, I guess, that what my eyes see and what a whitetail needs are not the two same things. And so you have to get out of what looks good to me is not always what's best for my whitetails. And so a lot of times my spring and summer plantings, when I look at one of my fields, to the average guy or to a guy wanting a magazine picture, that ain't it. But it's going to be extremely effective in growing a lot of biomass and introducing a lot of you know, plant material into that soil that, as you were talking earlier, there's different ways we can manipulate it when we start looking into our fall planting. But all of that's going back into that soil to try to start a, a better you know, or, organic cycle of, of bugs and bacteria and all the stuff that actually make a soil work. Yeah, that I, I love how specific you are. And I like taking the different classes of plants and putting them kind of together. And it's funny, you're taking kind of the offerings that Biologic has, you're splitting them up, you're thinking about seeding rates, you're thinking about, you know, landscape specifics, you know, and, and then timing, right? And then you're trying to take advantage of probably the good rains, you know, seasonally when, when you, we have the best opportunity in my, in, in my area. And it's funny, 
my warm season strategy isn't much different. I, I've used mung beans and sorghum and, you know, a, ho- a host of different varieties of plants. And I'm, I'm thinking, you know, I tried sun hemp a few years ago. It was another interesting plant in small quantities and, and partially because I'm roller crimping these areas. So I really need mm-hmm. a really a heavy grass component in order to roller crimp. So grass has to be at least for my blends, at least 50%, sometimes 60% of the blend, just so I can roller crimp it. Yes. And so that's the other f- piece of this is how are you hand? I wish I had a flail mower because I think that would actually make the process a lot easier for me rather yeah. than a roller crimper. And that's a, that, you know, I've seen people use all sorts of like, they take a tiller and they use that in, in, as an alternative, not actually tilling the ground, but just running the tiller over to crimp. You know, I've seen all different strategies behind this, but Boy, I wish I had a flail mower because I think that would that would be a game changer for me. And then the other piece of this is, you know, you bring up a topic that I think reminds me of something I just talked about with Marcus Lashley about how to create kind of this brooding cover scenario and having, you know, this STEMI structure and spacing and thinking about food plots more of in a navigatable kind of concept, right? Having accessibility in those areas. We think a lot about deer and we're talking about deer, but thinking about how other wildlife utilize kind of the landscape you know as a beneficial and a lot most of us are turkey hunters uh, on this podcast more than likely so thinking more about how it advantages other other species etc i I got a question Mm -hmm. i got a question for you and and i have this one client and i know he listens to this podcast he he is just a a diehard alfalfa guy i mean diehard i mean he sent me alfalfa to plant and uh, i appreciate that and uh, i did plant it so thank you but you know Establishing alfalfa, that's a, you know, legume, you know, it's a perennial. I'm interested in how you establish perennial and and the chufa. I want to hear about those two plants specifically. Yeah. Yeah. So let's hit on everything that you just talked about, because I I think it's all really important, Um, especially going back to the the sun hemp you were talking about. So I've used sun hemp before, and I think it's a cool plant. Oddly enough, there's still some books, there's still some stuff on the books, I believe in the state of Alabama and the state of Arkansas, and there may be one more that you cannot sell sun hemp legally in those states. You can plant it. You can buy it in another state and you can plant it there, but it's not legal for sale in some states. Um, and it goes back to it just being in the same class of family as not some noxious weeds. And it's like some of those crazy laws on the books from like the 1800s. And anyway, I got my hands on some sun hemp years ago and I wanted to try it in some different scenarios. I tried it with lab lab. I tried it with a lab lag and sorghum and millet mix. I I basically used it in four or five different scenarios that year. But, but what I wanted to see was how does it do with other plants? How does it do with other legumes and what's the growth cycle like? The mistake I made was protecting it too long with a fence that year because we had an extremely heavy deer density and I thought they would treat it like every other legume and just, you know, rape it. Uh, the trouble was we protected it for too long and we had good rainfall that summer and it just got out of hand. <laughs> so even the areas where we planted it at a half rate, um, the areas we planted it at a half rate and then the areas we planted it at the full rate by August, you know, we had 12 foot tall plants that 125-horse John Deere with front-wheel drive and a 15-foot batwing bush hog was having to run in low gear to chop it. And that's something to think about when you start looking at planting certain things. Well, how am I going to terminate this crop, or what are we going to do with it when it's time to plant for the fall? So something to keep in mind when you start adding a lot of different plants is, is also thinking about if they do great, how do we go forward with that with the equipment that we have at hand to prepare for the fall planting so a lot of cool plants out there but also always thinking about you know what does this look like three and four months from now if we have good growth and the deer don't completely decimate the crop just something to think about and then the other point that you were talking about about making food plots more navigable one of the reasons I'm such a big fan of trying to, and I don't want to use the word double crop because that infers, you know, two cash crops in the same field. But when I, I say double crop, I mean 
at using a perennial and an annual mm-hmm. in the same fields and trying to make let's just take a five acre block for example as productive as possible not just from how many crops that i'm growing in there and the amount of groceries that it puts out but being sort of a micro habitat within a piece of property that critters always want to be at because it has several values it has a food value it has a cover value but it it's an attraction value because when turkeys feel safe somewhere generally deers feel safe in that same spot and vice versa you know they they use the same landscapes in in different ways but if you see a if you see eight turkeys hanging out in the field and they're kind of spaced out if you'll ever notice the first couple of deer that come in there they come in there with with a little bit less apprehension when they walk into a field and nobody's out there the first thing a two plus year old doe is going to do is stop and look around she's probably checked the wind way before she walked up to the plot so she already kind of knows what to expect but she's also going to rely on what her eyes tell her and so from a hunting perspective if i've got a a pretty decent sized field that i'm hunting i kind of want to shrink that area down from a deer's perspective you know they they live in this 48 inch tall world and under from what they see and so if i've got this great big food plot that's nice and pretty and and i've got five acres of brassicas out there you're probably going to invite a lot of deer to that property but when we're talking about trying to let's say we're after a four five and six year old buck there there's little bitty there's little bitty chunks of the year where he's legally killable if you really want to look at it that way they just don't make that many mistakes and so if i'm trying to make this food plot not only produce the amount of food that I want it to produce, but also invite deer that are going to be naturally apprehensive because of their age and their experience. I'm going to have to do something different. I'm going to have to, you know, create lines or, you know, some, some linear stuff in that field that breaks up the the outline of, of a, I don't want a perfectly square field. I want something that's got some contour to it. You know, something that I may run a diagonal line across it with, you know, Egyptian wheat. There's so many ways that you can kind of get creative and not only make a whitetail travel like you want them to, sometimes they obey these, you know, rules that we set forth in our head and sometimes they completely ignore them. But, um, you know, having, having some of those annuals growing in a part of the field and then perennials in another part of the field and, and not having this perfectly straight tractor line in your head that separates the two sometimes that's all it takes in making a field you know more productive or more attractive to all wildlife is is going outside of the box and leaving you know two acres of my spring and summer blend standing through the winter it's not really producing a whole lot more you know what peas and beans it did produce it they're probably currently getting eaten or they're already gone but instead of just disking all that up in late summer, early fall, and just throwing some weed out there, you know, I'll just take a drill and just drill through it or just broadcast into it as those, you know, when I've got 30 or 45 days of decent growing season left, just go in there and broadcast, you know, some uh, some annual clovers and some, you know, some cereal grains and maybe a, diff- a couple of different types of, uh, of, of a turnip and a radish in there, knowing I'm not going to get 100% germination but I'm going to add some food value to something that's got some height value without having to, you know, completely uh, tear the ground up where and I'm, I've got a couple acres right here beside it that maybe I've got some really well-established clover in that is a, is a constant draw. And all that is just basically taking a field, regardless if it's two acres or 10 acres, and creating a lot of diversity within that one little pocket, you know, that – that is always going to be attractive to deer. And if I've got two or three of those spots across a property, I feel like my chances of keeping deer at home and keeping them happy, keeping something that turkeys can navigate through and feel like they're safe during the wintertime when there's no leaves on the trees, all those things start to make your little piece a little bit more attractive. I, I love this concept. This is, um, Jake Gillinger, who's been on this podcast, and I talked about this exactly what you're you're kind of hitting at is, is considering the height aspect of this and then leveraging. So I'll just throw out just an idea for anybody. So 
on some of these bigger fields, you know, I have a tendency to break them down, you know, kind of, kind of like Austin's talking about here. And, and one strategy you could, you create kind of block monocultures of sorghum. That's just a good, easy example. Sun hemp was the other one that we kind of talked about, but having kind of these blocks or, you know, allowing it to funnel deer, I, I think thinking about that in small segments and, and a block could be a 10 by 10 area. It doesn't have to be large. On my food plot, for example, on one of my food plots on my own property, you know, everyone that follows us, I have 48 acres, right? You know, my story is I have to, I'm micromanaging 70 yard by 70 yard sections. So one acre blocks, right? And so my food plots are smaller than that. But, you know, in those blocks, I'm creating this easily transversible area that has structure to create segmentation and visual limitation and thinking about a, a requirement built into your food plot design and layout kind of like Austin's getting at here. And I think introducing plants of height and structure to kind of create that 50 inches and down kind of compartmentalization, you know, making them feel a little bit more at home uh, is I think really kind of critical to the design layout philosophy and having some real, you know, thought process behind that, whether, you know, they're pinching closer to a tree stand or you're creating cover in between two areas. So it creates more opportunity for you know multiple deer to feel kind of, a feeling of comfort and security kind of in an open area. And it's, it's kind of balancing that kind of across the landscape design and, and layout. All right. So I, I got those other questions for you on establishing alfalfa and chufa. Yeah. Yeah. Let's get to that. Yeah, so I'm interested. I mean, th- those are huge questions and, and I'll, I'll be honest with you. I, I don't pretend to be an alfalfa expert because I've never lived in an area where it was a major crop. Now, I have grown some alfalfa. I have put in test plots of alfalfa down here in the south. And um, one thing I do know about it is that if you get it established, it is an amazing crop. It's it's got some really cool attributes that a lot of other legumes just don't have. Uh, you know, if you if you're in areas with high alkaline soils, you know it it likes those and prefers them uh, over you know a lot of your really good you know, white clover varieties that honestly, if you ask me, they prefer a slightly acidic soil. Um, they, they want something in that 6.4 to 6.8 range is where I see a lot of clovers really thrive. Doesn't mean they won't do good at 7.2, but if you want to be really specific, alfalfa just likes alkaline soils and, and more well-drained sandy type soil. So there's areas in the landscape where I think alfalfa can be really productive as a crop for whitetails as a crop for other critters, I think it leaves a little bit left on the table that clover is better at as far as being growing across a more wide variety of soil types. And so as much as I love alfalfa, as much as deer seem to love alfalfa, which is, you know, uh, no secret to that when you see, you know, the herds of them that come out into alfalfa fields, is it, from a hunting standpoint, how does it work for me? Well, you know, it's not very cold tolerant and it's really tough to establish in some places. And it's very particular about bugs. In my experience, there's only a handful of varieties that work consistently when you get below the Mason Dixon line. So if you live in an area where alfalfa is grown frequently and the soils match up to what it likes, I'm all for it, but I never want to put as that as being all my eggs in my basket as far as what my whitetails are going to be consuming, especially in the fall and the winter, I think it leaves a lot uh, left to be desired, which is where you're going to have to have some other crops to contend with. So if it's grown in your area and the soils match up and you can grow it good, I'm all about it. I think it's a cool crop. It's just for the majority of whitetail country, and I'm talking from – I talk to guys from – you know, Canada all the way to Florida every day and, and way, way out past the Mississippi sometimes in Nebraska. So it really depends on where you live at. If you live in Alabama, I'm probably not ever going to mention the word alfalfa to you. You know, if, if you live in some other places, you know, where the alkaline soils and stuff really match up with alfalfa. Yeah, it can, it can really work. The chufa is something that for whatever reason has always been a little bit more southern oriented crop maybe it's just because there's a higher percentage of turkey hunters in the south that have used it i don't know uh but it's kind of underutilized if you ask me it's a different crop it's in the nut stage family 
and it grows just about anywhere if you can get it established. It it can be a little finicky because it's a large seed, and if you've never looked at it, a seed, a handful of chufa seed in your hand, it looks like a bunch of old peanuts that have gone bad. You know, there it's it's kind of a shriveled up, dry looking uh, seed, but they are full of moisture and they actually taste great. I mean, you can pour them in a, a bowl and put milk in it, and it's like great cereal. <laughs> it's it's an it's an it's an odd plant. Um, they're very they're kind of it's got a sweet uh, nutty taste to the actual seed itself. So if you ever eat one, you see quickly why turkeys love them so much. Uh, getting it established and planting it is 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 not difficult, but you you have to think a little different because it's not a grass and it's not a broad leaf and it's not a legume. Uh, being a nut sedge, you don't get this beautiful above ground growth. Even if you have a perfect crop, it's just kind of like what am I looking at? It looks like a bunch of wire grass growing in a swamp sometimes. Um, so it doesn't have this illustrious look to the crop what's growing underneath the soil is, is the cool stuff for people that have never grown it before. It's, it grows this massive wad of tubers underneath the ground. And when you pull it up, when it starts getting mature, it's got these, you know, chufa nuts all massed into this wad of roots and it's kind of Turkey crack, you know, turkeys go crazy for it because they love to scratch and they love to scratch their food up, whether that be bugs and seeds, that's their DNA is, is scratching. Just like watching your chickens in the backyard. As soon as you let them out of the coop, the first thing my chickens want to do is go find leaves and sticks and scratch them and find bugs and seeds. And I don't think turkeys are all that indifferent when they're, um, you know, when they're calm and they've got somebody looking for hawks and predators, the rest of them want to be scratching. And I think that's one reason they love, Chufa so much is it's just in their DNA to scratch and find food. First year or two you plant it, it's a little odd because I've had to encourage people to go out there and actually run a disc or a tiller lightly through their chufa patch to pull some of them up so turkeys can kind of find it. Um, and then after that, it's kind of over. Um, they're gonna they're gonna pretty much live in that field until all the chufa's gone. So if you're really into providing a different type of food for your turkeys, you're probably not ever going to see your deer in a chufa field. Um, you might see them graze on the chufa plant itself a little, but very rarely, which is kind of nice because it's something that it's kind of only there for your birds. The cool thing is you don't have to plant 20 acres of it on a place to make a difference. You know, I've, I've gone in and planted some linear strips, you know, on the edge of some places where, you know, close to the timber, let's say, where your other crops don't do all that great because the, the root system from the, the uh, trees is sucking out all the moisture. El Chufa doesn't have to have a ton of moisture, so it may be a good place to put in a, you know, two or three tractor widths along the field edge. You're creating some diversity. It's a different plant height, and it's really easy to maintain from a weed standpoint because you can spray it with something as cheap and simple as 2,4-D for grass control or for a broadleaf control. And you can go in there with something like, you know, clethodim or cethoxidem for uh, grass control because it's, it's neither. It's a nut sedge. And if you've ever tried to get rid of nut sedge, let's say in your yard or in some other places, that stuff is tough. Uh, once it's established, it's tough. And so then the question begins, well, is it a perennial? <laughs> and by nature, it kind of is. Once your turkeys find it, there's usually not enough of it left to not have to go back in and replant, if that makes sense. Yeah, that does make sense. And and uh, the nut sedges to get rid of those is a difficult thing. But like you said, it's a consumable, so it's 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 going to be utilized. Once it's found, it's utilized. And now the question is, you know, how much do you need on the landscape, right? And we could have another discussion on, on that and thinking about, volumes of food plots or volumes of of food sources that we're planting in the landscape based on deer densities and how to manage you know this this issue that we're we're constantly in, in flux with is should i have more food plots or not that's a constant you know discussion that that, that i have to have with clients and um, you know where the focus is and you started this out originally and I'm, I'm taking this another direction we're kind of at the end here is 
managing your woodlots. You know, you've, you've got history, educational history and experience doing that. That's an important time. This is things that we should be talking about this time of year. In addition to planting spring food plots, kind of weighing both of those in this equation of, you know, balancing of planted food versus resident natural food, minimizing kind of the, the non-edibles, right? And, and particularly the ones that are not native. In your areas, obviously in the South, you're dealing with different ecoregions and types and, you know, thinking what's natural on the landscape is pretty critical. It's a little simple here in the North. You brought concepts up today of drought, um, thinking about, we talked a little bit about maturity periods of plants, managing the residual crop and thinking about the next planting. You know, I use the term double cropping. In my philosophy, that means I'm planting the, the same crop or a similar crop and thinking the sequencing. Uh, we talked a little bit about carbon, organic material, the importance of that. Herbicides, you just brought that up the end, and diversity. I think that's the most important thing is trying something new and different, not being scared to try mung beans this year, you know, lab lab. Some of the other examples that we brought up, I think it's just thinking different outside of the box. Uh, we, we have a tendency to get pigeonholed and do the same thing um, on a, a normal basis, and, th- and that may work for you, um, but it's taking some of these concepts and applying them, you know, thinking about the vertical height and structure, the volume of plants, right, to create some concealment, camouflaging in fields, kind of a lot in this podcast. And uh, Austin, I, I appreciate your time. I love, I, hopefully we have you on here again, because I, I think this is just like, you know, we're just just getting a little bit of the taste of, you know, kind of your experience. And I know that, you know, it, you are the food plot guru in Bobby's mind, but the reality of it is you, you do wildlife <laughs> management on a larger scale. And uh, it's important to leverage that, that knowledge that you have so folks can start to think about, you know, improvements. So uh, any, any, yeah, I want to, I want to help people out and, you know, I, I've been doing this a long time, but um, I don't, I want to share my mistakes I've made with people. And, and I tell the people all that all the time so that you don't have to make them. And more than importantly, maybe you save money along the way and, and have, you know, extra left over to go buy a tag in another state. <laughs> so, yeah. you know, I, I want, I want people to, I want people's property to be the best it can. I want to give sound advice and, um, maybe it's not something I read out of a book because 90% of what I know is it didn't come from a book. It came from, you know, uh, hands in the dirt for lack of a better term. So, you know, I, I've made a lot of mistakes through the years and I can tell you what does and doesn't work a lot of times. Um, and, and help people implement that. So uh, appreciate y'all letting me be on. Yeah, no, I'm happy to have you on. All right, well, we'll, we'll talk again soon, and uh, we'll, uh, we'll keep following you. So thanks, Austin. Thank y'all. All right, see ya. Maximize Your Hunt is a production of Whitetail Landscapes. For more information on how John Teeter and his team of experts can help you maximize your hunt, check out Whitetail Landscapes dot com.